Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis 34 is where we're at this morning. Uh, my name is Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff here at Fullerton Free. And if you're a guest, we want to say welcome to you. That's, I think, already been done. But I, let me just reemphasize, if you're a guest, we're happy you're here. But we don't want you to stay a guest for very long. And if I or uh, anybody else on our team can help to make you feel like family or help you uh, sort of get plugged in, we'd love for you to do that. We're in an ongoing study in the book of Genesis, and so 34 is where we find ourselves. And I'll talk about that in a second, but before I do, uh, let me just say one quick thing. Some of you received a letter from me midweek this week, like on Wednesday, uh, and admittedly, it was a letter that we sent out broadly, although it was targeted specifically at those who maybe over the last couple of years uh, have found themselves away from church for a variety of reasons. It's You guys, it's no news flash to you, but over the last two and a half or so years, there's been a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear and a lot of frustration and whatever. And uh, for some folks in the middle of that, there were reasons to step away from fellowship in a local church or maybe to step into fellowship in another church or whatever. And regardless of that, I, I feel like it was valuable this week to reach out and just say to one and all, hey, if you're somewhere today, whether you're watching online or whether you're you know gathered in a different spot or maybe you're not attending church at all right now, we just want you to know you're welcome here. Uh, and we sent that to everybody, just kind of a broad welcome that says, we, you know, it doesn't matter why you may be left or why, why, what you're processing at the time, but just know we've got a seat for you here and we love you and we'd love to see you. The reason I sent that letter to everyone, knowing that many of you are here already, uh, was that you may know people I don't know. So I just wanted to reemphasize again that I'm, I'm sort of deputizing you um, and that if you think about your circle of influence, if you think about your friends, relationships, maybe coworkers, people in your neighborhood who for one reason or another have been away from the gathered body of Christ at Fullerton Free and, and it would be valuable for you just to tap them on the shoulder and go, hey, we miss you. We love you. You're welcome. Come on back. Uh, I would love if you'd help sort of get that word out. I talked to a couple of people this morning who, uh, who didn't get the email and some that did and we, you know, we're trying to get that out. But I just want to make sure you guys know that if you know people who would be blessed to be invited back, then by all means, uh, invite them back. We'd love to see those folks back around. So there's that. Uh, now let's talk about Genesis 34. I said last week, if you were with us, that uh, we got a little bit of a reprieve in 33, because in Genesis 33, there was some hugging, there was some kissing, there was some reconciliation, there was a little bit of joy and celebration. We get to 34, and I will just tell you, if you're joining us fresh today and you haven't been a part of the ongoing study, I'll tell you, there isn't much to celebrate. There's not, no, there's literally nothing to celebrate in Genesis 34, right? Um, there is much to be uh, revolted by. There is much to be troubled by. There is much to be bothered by. And I know that's quite a setup for the message. Uh, but let me just say in, in warning that there are, um, there are a lot of really terrible and horrific things that happen in Genesis 34. We see in, in addition to selfishness and pride and manipulation, things we see regularly in Genesis 34, we see rape, sexual assault. We see murder. We see the use of, uh, like holy covenant, signs of holy covenant uh, weaponized in the slaughtering of people. Uh, we, I mean, it's a, we're going to read it together in just a second. But I, I want to take a moment before we even dig into the story and say this. We know that the, the statistics say that one in six Americans have either been, uh, uh, have either been raped or have been the victims of an attempted rape. Uh, we know that 80% of women have felt some sort of sexual uh, assault or been close to sexual assault. Um, we know that it's rampant. We know that, that it is horrific and 
awful. And I just want to say, before we even dive into the text, that whether you're male or female, whether you've been raped or you know someone who's been raped, whether you've been a part of that, um, I, I want you to know that we love you. And more even than just our church loving you, I want you to know that Jesus loves you and that he sees you and that you are not alone, that you're not carrying the pain. There is uh, scientific data to say that the PTSD from a sexual assault lasts for years and years and years. If you're walking even currently through things that may have happened 40 years ago to you or happened a week ago or whatever, it doesn't matter who you are or what that looks like. Um, if, you, if you've been victimized in this space, I want you to hear as clearly as I can possibly say it, that we want to walk with you that we don't want you to carry that alone, that we don't want you to feel like you're not seen or we're not aware of the prevalence of this. We would love to be a family with you in this to help you find resources and tools. Uh, We we want to love you well in the spirit and name of Jesus because he loves you well. So as as we dig into this, I just want to acknowledge at the outset that it may trigger some things, and it might be heavy for some of you. Um, we, we don't dodge passages of Scripture because they're difficult. We don't work our way around them. We're, not, we're, we're working through this, this study chapter by chapter and verse by verse. But we also, uh, it, it's, I think, beneficial to take the time to just say, we know this might be a trigger for some, and let's be in it together. Don't carry that by yourself, okay? So we're going to read uh, Genesis 34 together. I'm not going to invite you to stand because we're going to kind of walk through it a little bit at a time, and then, and then we'll sort of unpack it. Uh, together as we go. So it says this in Genesis 34, verse 1. Now, Dinah, the, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Let me stop real quick and just say there are a lot of different people who've interpreted this a lot of different ways. Many times the way they try and interpret these first few verses is in an effort to sort of soften the blow. Uh, I want you you to understand as we're studying this together that this is talking about rape. This is talking about sexual assault. Don't try and water that down. Don't try and look away from it. Don't dodge it. He takes someone who does not belong to him and he assaults her. That's what this is. It's in the reverse order of the way relationships should happen. There are some commentators who will look at the text and they'll say, oh, well, but at least he fell in love with her. And afterwards he spoke tenderly to her and look, he wants to marry her. Uh, okay, maybe it's better uh, than if he hated her afterwards or tried to kill her afterwards, but that doesn't make this justifiable or excusable. It's heinous. It's the abuse of someone who's made in the image of God. Shechem takes Dinah and humiliates her. He seizes her and lays with her and humiliates her. And yes, it does say that he has affection towards her afterwards. It might, uh, it might trouble you in verse four, where he says, get me this girl for my wife. Um, that both speaks in some ways to her age, that she's not older, she's, she's young. Uh, but it also is, um, it, it speaks sort of to the way that marriage has happened in the time frame. Just because a thing happened in a certain way in the time frame, though, doesn't make it justifiable or excusable either. Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife, verse 4. And it doesn't get any better here. Let's keep going. Verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, 
The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me, only give me the young woman to be my wife. So Shechem uh, rapes Dinah and then he says, I I love her, I want her to be my wife. Hamor, his father, recognizes that there is some advantage to be taken there, right? That there is an opportunity to forge an alliance and so he goes to Jacob. Don't miss the fact that in the text we don't see Jacob ever saying one word to Dinah. We don't see Jacob consulting her. We don't see the brothers consulting her. We don't see the victim in this text asked any questions or even addressed, to be honest with you. And, and you might be tempted this morning again to look at a text like this and say, well, that was back then, right? That was back then. Women's voices were diminished. Victims' voices were diminished. You guys, it's not any better today. It's not any better today. Dinah is not addressed. She's not consulted. She's not, she, nobody asks her how she feels or what's going on. Jacob is silent, He does not speak to her pain. He does not speak to her affliction. At the end of this chapter, when Jacob finally speaks, you guys, the only thing Jacob bothers to say at the end is to to complain about how this has hurt his reputation. So allow that to churn in you a little. It should churn in you a little. It certainly churns in me a little. They don't talk to Dinah. They don't ask her anything. Her voice is not here. Hamor and Shechem come to Jacob with a plan to intermarry because there's advantage for them. Well, let's watch the way the thing progresses. It says in verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Well, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to all the men of their city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. So the next section here, Hamor and Shechem come to Jacob and his sons. And they say, hey, we want to we work out a deal. Uh, Shechem would like to be married to Dinah. And we think that can be advantageous for everybody. Well, Dinah's brothers come back and they say, well, that's just not how we do it. We're not going to let our sister be married to someone who's uncircumcised. So basically you and all the people in your city would have to be circumcised if we want to make this alliance happen, right? And it tells us at the outset of that section of the story that they were acting deceitfully. So don't miss the fact here. If you're looking for a hero in the story, there are none. Even Jacob's sons, Dinah's brothers, are using the sign of the covenant. They're using circumcision, the sign of God's favor and blessing upon his people. They're weaponizing that as a way to take advantage of these men. A way to take advantage of the city. There's manipulation. There's advantage taking. There still is no conversation necessarily about what's been done to Dinah. 
all the men look at it and they say, there's great advantage for us. We'll get their livestock. We'll get their property. We'll get some of their daughters. Like this works out pretty good. And if all we got to do is be circumcised, I don't know how they exactly did the math on that, but they did the math on it. And they decided that that's what they would do because there was advantage for them in this alliance. So verse 25, on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But the brother said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Uh, it's not great, right? I don't know. I, I know I already said that. But basically, all of these men are circumcised in order to make this alliance. And then while they're sore, three days after the circumcision, Simeon and Levi take up their swords and they go into the city and they kill all the males, not just Shechem, not just Hamor, all the males in the city. And they take everything else as plunder, including the women and children. I have a lot of questions about this. What, what happens to these women and children? What happens to all this stuff? Why, why did they decide to kill all the males instead of just the offending ones? I mean, there's so many red flags and sort of exclamation points that stir in my heart as I read the text. And then finally, at the end, we hear Jacob's voice. And Jacob says, hey, this, this looks really bad for me, right? It's really bad for all this stuff that's happened. It's not great for my street cred. People are going to be mad. They're going to come after me. I wish you hadn't done this. Still not one word about his daughter. I'm, I'm grieved by this. And I want you to see as we look at it, I want to I look at this in, through th- kind of three different lenses this morning. But I want you to see before we even do that, that this is a chapter about people taking. It's a chapter about takers. There is Shechem who takes what he sees. He takes Dinah. He takes that relationship with her. There is uh, Hamor who is trying to take advantage of the situation to his own personal gain. Right? There are the sons of Jacob who take up their swords in order to take revenge. And then there is Jacob who t- takes offense at what has been done to his reputation. There's taking and taking and taking and taking. And it should not be missed by any of us that in an environment where everybody is intent upon taking what they can get, there is only pain and suffering and sorrow and victimization. So when we look at the text, the first big lens, I don't know if you're like me, but as I was prepping for this, the first big question or or the big lens I, I need an answer to is why is this even in here, right? Why include 34 at all? Why, why do we have to hear this story? There doesn't feel like there's a moment where God sort of steps in and says, I hated this particular part of our story, right? We don't hear God's commentary on it. They never consult God. I mean, it's worth, if you're taking notes, it's worth noting God doesn't, God doesn't appear in this chapter at all. He doesn't speak. He's not consulted. He's not addressed. This is just a bunch of people doing their people stuff, right? Now, that doesn't mean that he's gone. And we'll talk about this a little bit more. God is never absent. God is never distant. He's never, he's never absconded himself. But he doesn't appear in the chapter. I have questions. Why is it here? Well, I, I think we can answer that question um, 
sort of in a kind of a macro way down to a micro way. From a macro level, one of the things we've talked about as a group, as a family, over the course of the study of Genesis, is that there is an overarching story of the Bible. And that the overarching story of the Bible is that at the beginning, when all things were created, there was harmony and there was oneness, right? There's oneness between God and man. There's oneness between man and woman. There's oneness and harmony between God and man and woman and nature. There is shalom. There's peace. And then sin enters the picture in Genesis chapter 3, and there is brokenness. And increasingly, there is otherness. All of a sudden, we don't have the oneness of man and woman, or man and God, or God and man and woman in nature. All we've got is increasing brokenness over the course of the story. And as we continue in Genesis, we just see more and more otherness and brokenness. We've lost the oneness and harmony that came in original creation. And the reason why the Bible is telling that story at a macro level, and certainly Genesis 34 is a story of otherness, if any chapter is, the reason why the Bible is telling that story of brokenness and otherness in increasing measure is to whet our appetites for healing and restoration that only comes in Christ. So when Jesus comes, we'll talk about this in a second as well. What do we have in, in the shed blood and resurrection of Christ? In the death and resurrection of Christ, we have oneness again in Christ. The opportunity to, to be made whole. But there is brokenness at a macro level that's being articulated. The, that the consequences of sin, the consequences of sin are things like violence and manipulation and abuse. And no one is immune. If we, if we step down from that macro lens, maybe one tier, I could say that in my opinion, I think Moses, who is the author of the book of Genesis, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, Moses knows his intended audience. His intended audience are the people of Israel who are about to go into the promised land. They're about to go into Canaan. And so in some ways, he's giving them a little bit of context. He's giving them a little bit of background. He's telling them, hey, you're going to be entering into a place where you're going to be wandering among foreign peoples, and there will be temptation, temptation to, uh, to hurt and to abuse. And there will also be danger, the danger of being hurt and being abused, being victimized by other people and victimizing others. So in some ways, as Moses is telling the story, he doesn't, he doesn't leave it out. He includes it because he wants the people as they're going into the promised land to be aware that there are going to be circumstances and situations where God doesn't speak explicitly and you still need to be able to make God word decisions. Does that make sense? That there are going to be places and circumstances where the people that you're among are going to make decisions that aren't particularly godlike, And you need to know how to respond. Moses is giving them background on the conflict. He's talking to them about the, the danger and temptation in Canaan. Temptation to be led by their passions and their flesh rather than by God. In some ways, I think he's emphasizing the value of the law, which is also given, right? But there's, there's a sense here at, at an even smaller level in which Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is also re-articulating to us a thing we've talked about before, and that is that everybody's broken, right? When you read this story, uh, there is a tendency for us to go, wow, these people are awful, and murderers and rapists and whatever. But, but the reality is that, that part of why a story like this remains in Scripture and is included in Scripture is, is to remind us that this happened. That this isn't a book of fables. It's not a book of clever myths. It's not a book of inspirational stories, right? You don't turn the page and find a hero in in every narrative. No, many times, as we've seen over the course of our study in Genesis, what we're seeing are broken people that God is able to use even in the midst of their brokenness. And while you might look at that and go, well, I'd rather have a story about heroes or I'd rather have a story about people who are perfect or impeccable. The reality is, if that's what the Bible was, it wouldn't be a, a, a story for us. It wouldn't be instructive to us because there's none of us in the room who are impeccable. 
None of us who are perfect. None of us who are infallible. None of us who get it right. Right? So in in telling these stories of the brokenness of people, we are able to see ourselves reflected. The Bible is not cleaned up. We're, We're reminded that all people are a mess. And God preserves and redeems still. And the last thing, and I've kind of already mentioned this, but why is the story included? I think it's to prepare them and to prepare us to make decisions in the absence of God's explicit command. We don't have an explicit command from God about what to do about Dinah's rape. We don't have an explicit command about what to do with the offer of treaty from Hamor and Shechem. We don't have an explicit command from God about whether or not Simeon and Levi were justified in the slaughter of every male in this town. We don't have an explicit command. And there are lots of things in your my life where we don't have explicit commands for them, right? There's probably things going on in your life today. Decisions about family, decisions about career, decisions about culture, decisions about life and living it that you can't turn to a verse and it says you should be a dentist or whatever, right? You'd be nice if there was a verse that said that. But the reality is that you and I are having to make decisions in the margins all the time. And this chapter is instructive to give us a sense of how do we do that. I, I actually, the second thing I kind of want to talk about this morning, not just why is it here, but, but how can it be instructive for us, even in the midst of the revulsion? And I think the way it's instructive is to get us to stop and think, what do you do when God hasn't given you an explicit command? When it feels like God is silent. Many of you have probably experienced the, the moments where you pray and you feel like your prayers kind of hit the ceiling and bounce off. What do you do when God hasn't given you an explicit command? Well, the first thing I would say, and I'll give you just a couple of these things to think about. But one of the things we do in the absence of an explicit command by God, number one, is I think appreciate the silence. It's hard to appreciate the silence sometimes because we would love for God to just be telling us what to do all the time. But in appreciating the silence, a couple things happen. First is that you recognize that God has given you the opportunity to glorify him By honoring him with your actions and your choices, with your words and your deeds. You're not a robot, and you're also not someone who's taking dictation all the time, right? So appreciate the silence, because in that silence, you have the opportunity to think about your choices. But I would also say that silence gives us the opportunity to reflect upon our own judgment. So I would say silence is a great opportunity for me to, to lean away from my own understanding, right? Proverbs 3, 5, kind of a famous verse Proverbs 3, 3, 5 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. I think in moments where we're trying to make good decisions, people love to go, hey, just trust in the Lord, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and he will direct your paths. And that's true. It's in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. But what we tend to sort of conveniently skip over is the second part of verse 5 where it says, don't trust your own understanding. Lean away from your own understanding. Why? Because all of us are biased. Because all of us miss it sometimes. Because all of us get it wrong. Because all of us have been influenced, right? The reality is that in the silence, I have the opportunity to question my assumptions, to question my biases, to question my own understanding, and to lean away from it. So trust in the Lord, absolutely. But trust in the Lord while not trusting your own understanding is the key, right? It says elsewhere in the Bible that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. That's King James, because I think I learned it in Awanas or whatever, right? Uh, that maybe isn't a very great Awanas verse. It doesn't matter, right? The reality is the silence gives me an opportunity to lean away from my own perception. I wish that Jacob and Simeon and Levi had leaned away from their own perceptions and their own understanding, from the thing that was stirring in their guts that made them want to kill everybody in sight. I wish they'd leaned away from that understanding because that understanding was not indicative of the character and heart of God. 
So don't misinterpret the silence. Use the silence to question yourself. And then, as it says in Proverbs 3 and elsewhere, trust the Lord. James 1 is instructive in this. James 1 verse 5 may be familiar to some of you. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Reality is the Bible says that in moments where we're in the margins, moments where God has not given us an explicit command, we have the ability to ask God, what should I do? Who should I marry? Where should I go? What should I pay for? What kind of job should I, you know, like all of those things. Ask God. Call upon God and ask him. And then, and then actually listen and wait for him to answer. There is a sense in which we have the ability to approach God. Not only that in James 1.5, uh, a little bit further in James 1, it says in verses 19 and 20, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I wish that Jacob and Simeon and Levi and their brothers, I wish that they'd gone slow. And maybe that's my third deal for me and maybe for you, is that in those moments where I'm trying to make a decision and God hasn't given me an explicit command, I want to appreciate the silence. I want to listen to God and trust him. But I also want to go slow. I want to be quick to listen and slow to speak, and slow to anger. Think about how different this chapter might have gone, Genesis 34, if they would have just slowed down. If they would have just slowed down and had a conversation with all the affected parties, but they're rushing. Sometimes in our anger, we tend to move too quick. I remember a time I was hanging with my kids. My wife uh, had, had to leave. She left kind of quick to go off to a thing. And so I'm sitting with the kids and I, I wander into our front bathroom, which this is the house in Long Beach, which the front bathroom at our house in Long Beach was kind of like a hallway. Also, it had a door on either end. And I noticed that the, the sink, the cabinet under the bathroom sink was open and there were like some cleaning things that had been spilled out like uh, Drano or I don't know what it was, you know, something's been spilled out. And I kind of panicked because I thought one of my kids has gotten into these cleaning solutions and they're poisonous. Like one of my kids may have eaten some of this. So I go to my kids and I was like, hey, everybody on the couch, you know, I sit them all down. I'm like, I just noticed that there's stuff spilled in the bathroom. And they're like, we're sorry. They didn't even know what I was talking about. They just used to apologize. We're sorry. I'm like, no, I don't care about that. I want to know who was it that did it. And did you eat any of that stuff? And they're like, dad, we didn't eat anything. And I was like, I know one of you were messing with the chemicals and I need to know right now which one of you it was. And if you don't tell me, I'm going to take all of you to the hospital and get your stomachs pumped, you know? And they're, now they're sobbing, you know, I'm shouting at them. I'm pointing my fingers. They're crying. We didn't do it. We didn't have anything to do with that. It wasn't us. We don't know why you're so mad. We didn't do it. And I'm like, I'm mad because you, one of you might die. You know, like I'm just kind of, I took it a little far maybe. Uh, and then, uh, my wife comes home. I, basically, none of them owned up to it. And so I just kind of waited to see what was going to happen. I figure I got four kids. So if I lose one of those, this, this is still pretty good odds, you know. So uh, I just kind of waited it out. And uh, my wife comes home and she's like, oh, I saw you cleaned up the, the bathroom. And I was like, yeah, how'd you know about that? And she's like, oh, I was running late. And I kind of rushed through there and my purse bumped the cabinet. And I saw the stuff fell out, but I figured you would grab it. Well, that would have been helpful earlier when I was screaming about death to our children, right? Had I slowed down, had I slowed down, had I been, had I been quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to anger, would have made a difference. When we're trying to figure out how to make decisions in the margins, we ask God, we go slow. And then I think Genesis, or excuse me, James one twenty two, even just a little bit further down, James one twenty two says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So I would say when you're trying to make decisions, part of the answer is, Act on what you know already. 
Act on what you know already. Think about how different Genesis 34 would be if Jacob or Simeon or Levi had simply thought about how God had conducted himself before that day, before this event. How does God treat those, right? How does God treat those who do things? Does, does he ever send anybody in to murder all the males? God had not done that. That's, that's not indicative of how God had carried himself with them. Right? Had they paid attention to the way God had already revealed himself, it would have made a difference. I think for us, in trying to make decisions in our lives, one of the key deciding factors should be pay attention to the character of God as revealed in his word and as revealed in your understanding of him over time. And then lastly, I would say, when we're trying to figure this out, the, 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 the absolute landing spot for us especially, and this won't be a surprise to you because I talk about this all the time, But you and I are called to be ambassadors, which means you and I are called to put on Christ. We're called to reveal Christ in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. So when I'm trying to make a decision about anything, somebody's wronged me or I've wronged somebody else, or I'm trying to make decisions about future or whatever, the best thing I can do is, and I know it's cliche because of the bracelets and the bumper stickers and all of that, but honestly, the best question to ask yourself is what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do in this situation? How would he handle it? With his gentleness and his lowliness, with his compassion and love, you and I should be driven in our decision-making. Even if we don't have an explicit command from God, we should be driven by putting Jesus on display in every circumstance. That's what an ambassador does. Now, admittedly, Jacob and Simeon and Levi and the other brothers, they don't have the opportunity to put Jesus on display because Jesus hadn't revealed himself to them as he has to us. But it sort of brings me to the final thing I want us to think about this morning, and that is this. If you're looking at Genesis 34 and you're going, this is a terrible chapter. I wish I'd never read it. I wish that things went a little bit differently in it. Yeah, I get it. The, the, the characters here are revolting, but, but let's do this for a second. What happens... When rather than looking at the character of the people in the story in Genesis 34, what happens instead if we compare and contrast all of those characters to the Lord Jesus himself? If we lay the Lord Jesus over the story, we realize a couple of things that are actually quite instructive in in circumstances. I'll just give you a few examples of this. But the reality is that when we think about Jesus and we look at Genesis 34, well, the reality is that Jesus never takes advantage of anyone. So what Shechem does to Dinah is not indicative of the character of God. In fact, in Deuteronomy, God actually says to us and to all the people, hey, I'm laying in front of you life and death, good and evil. So choose life, right? Our God is a God who offers the kingdom. Jesus himself in his message says, repent for the kingdom of God is available, right? He doesn't say repent because I'm going to jam you into the kingdom of God. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, sell everything you have and follow me fully. And the rich young ruler is unwilling to do that. And Jesus doesn't chase him. Jesus is not someone who forces himself upon someone else. Jesus is not someone who takes advantage of another. If anything, Jesus came to the earth to lay himself down for the good of other people. So lay Jesus over the top of Genesis 34 And we find some redeeming characteristics, not in Shechem, but in the Lord Jesus, compared to what human beings are like. Jesus is not one that takes advantage. He's one who offers and gives and knocks. He's a a giver, not a taker. Jesus is not silent about injustice. 
Jesus is not silent about injustice. In Luke chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus is uh, in the temple. He takes the scroll. It says, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set, li- set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We look at Genesis 34 and we see a father who is silent about the assault of his daughter. We see a father who does not address the issue ever in this text. And I just want you to see, let's put Jesus on the top of it and recognize that's not who Jesus is. Jesus came to be a voice and an advocate for the oppressed and for the lost, and for the hurting, and for for the stranger, right? For the refugee. Jesus is not someone who turns a blind eye to the suffering of people. He's not silent about injustice, and Jesus cares for the afflicted and the neglected. In Matthew chapter 25, it talks about, uh, it, it talks about the people. Well, Jesus tells a story. Let me read this to you in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is Jesus speaking, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Not only is Jesus not silent about injustice, but Jesus cares for the afflicted and the neglected. He's he's a carer, right? Unlike Jacob, and unlike Simeon and and Levi in this text, Jesus is not deceitful, and he does not use religious practice as a weapon. Jesus is not deceitful, so unlike Jacob's excuse me, unlike Jacob's sons who deceived the men of Shechem, uh, the Hivites, and and used that as a way to slaughter them, that's never Jesus's angle. Jesus never takes religious practice or faith and uses it to trick people or to deceive them. He never weaponizes faith ever. Now, historically, over time, lots of his followers have done that to their shame. But Jesus himself never weaponizes faith. He never weaponizes religious practice. He's true and generous, gracious. Jesus does not take revenge. Jesus doesn't take revenge. You put him over the top of Genesis 34 and you immediately see the difference. Jesus is one who calls us to love our enemies. Matthew chapter 5 verse 44, Jesus says, I say to you, uh, in, in 44, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Luke six thirty seven, he says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. In Luke twenty three thirty four, from the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If anybody could have been justified in taking revenge. It's the Lord Jesus. He has a perfect knowledge of the working of the human heart. He knows exactly who deserves to be killed and who doesn't, right? And Jesus doesn't take the opportunity to exercise vengeance, but Jesus extends grace. Jesus extends forgiveness and love. We lay that over the top of Genesis 34 and we see something drastically different. Lastly, Jesus is not driven by people's perceptions of him. 
He's driven by the glory of God and love for other people. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 talks about being anxious. We won't read the whole thing. But Jesus says in, in Matthew 6, 31, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says, why are you worried about what people think? Why are you worried about what you're going to wear? What are you going to eat? You don't need to worry about any of those things. Worry about the kingdom of God. And all that other stuff will take care of itself. Unlike Jacob, who at the end of the story is like, man, all this murder and all this stuff that's happened, it's really bad for my reputation. Jesus isn't driven by his own reputation. He's driven by care and concern. The very incarnation is care and concern for the plight of you and I who are lost in our sin. When we look at a text like this, there's a temptation for us to be repelled by it. But what we have the ability to do because of Christ is to compare and contrast what we see in the failings of human beings, in the brokenness and otherness of human beings like us. Compare and contrast that activity and that character with the character of the Lord Jesus and to be inspired. You you see, we haven't gathered here this morning to worship Simeon. We're not going to sing songs to Levi. We haven't gathered here this morning to sing the praises of Jacob even. No, no, we've gathered this morning to worship the Lord Jesus whose character is flawless and who doesn't take advantage and doesn't abuse and doesn't neglect those who are disenfranchised or or have been assaulted. He's not silent about people's pain. He leans in when human beings might be tempted to lean away. He's not vengeful, but loving and gracious. That is the God we've come to worship here this morning. So when you look at Genesis 34 and your stomach starts to churn, That's okay for a minute because there's some stomach churning stuff in 34. But don't just park there. Lift up your eyes to Christ because he is everything that these human beings are not and he is everything that we are not. We're going to finish our service this morning with a time of response as we do every week. And that includes singing and prayer. It includes being open to the movement of the Holy Spirit within you. I just want to give you a couple of prompts maybe with regard to response. I... I would guess that there are some of you in the room, I know there are some of you in the room who've been victimized. Some of you who maybe have come to define yourself as a victim. And I I would just love for you to lift up your eyes this morning, not to set aside the things that have happened to you, but lift up your eyes and remind yourself again or be reminded again the way that the Lord Jesus sees you. Be reminded again that he sees you as a son or as a daughter. Lift up your eyes and look at the body of Christ and be reminded again how we see you as a brother or a sister, as someone who who is saved by the grace of God, someone to be walked alongside and cared for. And as we respond, uh, some of the elders and some of our staff are going to come, as we do every week, they're going to line up here in the front, basically making themselves available for prayer. I just want to say this. If you're here this morning and, and you've been the victim of an assault like the one we see in the text or something else that's come to sort of define who you are, I wonder if you would give us the privilege of whispering a different name in your ear this morning. That maybe you'd make your way down here as led by the Holy Spirit to come and see one of us and just let us lean forward and look at you and say, you are the beloved one of Christ Jesus. He cares about you and he loves you and he sees you and we will walk with you in all of this. I wonder if there's an opportunity for us to speak some of that over you this morning. I wonder if there are some of you in the room who, who have had loved ones or friends or family who've dealt with some of the pain and the grossness that we see in a text like this and you just need the Holy Spirit's power to lift your eyes away from the suffering that happens in the kingdom of men to the goodness of God and of his redeeming power 
that sustains us even in the midst of the difficulty. And so if you want to come up and receive prayer, if you, if you want to pray where you sit, if you want to stand and sing or sit and sing, or you want to, uh, the posture doesn't really matter to us. The response is one of honesty and truth. And so we invite you to respond in a way that's honest to the truth of who Jesus is in spite of the truth of who we are. Takers rather than givers. Jesus is a giver. Will you let him give to you this morning?